Hello and welcome to Book Reviews Kill, a podcast about fantasy, sci-fi, and horror novels. I'm Evan. And I'm Chad. And you're joining us today for a conversation with Christopher Paolini, author of The Inheritance Cycle, To Sleep in a Sea of Stars, and the upcoming novel Fractal Noise, which releases on May 16th of this year. Christopher, thank you so much for sitting down with us today. My pleasure. Glad we could work it out. So we always like to start with this question for our interviews as we are a podcast primarily centered on books. What are you currently reading, if anything? Ooh, um, well, not too long ago, I read uh, Blood Meridian by Cormac McCarthy. Um, still thinking about that one, actually. Uh, I'm trying to think about, uh, I'm reading the first uh, Thomas, the Unbeliever, Covenants of Thomas. I, I can't remember the name of the first book. Was it Lord Fowl's Bane or something? Yeah. Um, which is a classic of fantasy, and I should have read that ages ago. Um, also working my way through a collection of North American, Native American um, uh, myths and legends that I picked up locally. So that's kind of fun. I love I love reading mythology, and you know, because usually it's like a whole bunch of collection of short stories in in essence. So um, that's been fun. I'm just trying to think. I, oh, I <laughs> I've been having a blast reading. Um, are, you, are either of you familiar with the short television show Garth Marenghi's Dark Place? No. No, I can't say I am. <laughs> okay, okay. So it's done by a lot of the same guys who worked on uh, the IT crowd. Okay. And it is a spoof series that, and that the conceit is that there's an author who's essentially like the bad version of Stephen King, and his name is Garth Marenghi. And he wrote and starred in this television show in the 80s even though it was made more recently and it's just an absolutely horrible show but it's been rediscovered and it's being aired now with an introduction by him and it's all surreal and pretentious and if you're a writer um it's it's horribly funny because it's all about poking fun at bad writing while being bad writing itself <laughs> and the guy who created it, who plays Garth Marenghi, wrote a book as Garth Marenghi. It's his terror tome. Um, How meta. <laughs> it is It is perhaps the book of the decade for me because it's nothing but a series of bad puns, specifically about bad writing, uh, starring a writer as the main character. And I'm probably going to send it to my agent and he's going to tear his hair out reading it. Um, <laughs> So yeah, that that's that's Garth Marenghi's terror tome is what I'm actually thoroughly enjoying at the moment. Well, thank you for okay. that recommendation. Yeah. So okay, that's the present day, and I know that everyone wants to hear what we've got going on right now, but I'm going to take us back through time a little bit to the beginning. Is there any specific book that sticks out in your mind that kind of captured your heart and soul and turned your focus to the fantasy genre? Like one specifically that you're like, without this book, I wouldn't hmm. be the Paolini we all know and love. So I tried reading um, the Narnia series when I was fairly young. My my dad had had recommended it to me. Uh, and I think I was a little too young. I, I sort of bounced off that. And then um, I was maybe a year or so later. I, I mean, so we're talking maybe 10, 11, 12, somewhere in that range. Um, and then a few years later, I read The Hobbit and just fell in love with The Hobbit. Um, it's still my favorite Tolkien novel. Uh, and then I went back and read all of the Narnia books. Uh, and then I tried reading Lord of the Rings and, and again, bounced off of them. They were a little too scary, quite honestly. The black writers were too scary for me at that age. Um, but it was, it was really that sort of that, that combination of C.S. Lewis, 
uh, Tolkien, and and then I just started reading everything I get my hands on. Um, oh well, I've talked about this before, but actually it was the 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 one that really really captured my attention was um, the Ruby Knight by David Eddings. Uh, when I was nine, I want to say I was in a B Dalton, which is a book chore, bookstore chain that no longer exists, and I was with my uh, Italian grandfather. And I was walk, going around in the store and I saw this book, um, which I still have on the shelf here. Uh, well, we're doing a podcast, so I'm not going to pull it off. But um, I saw this book and it had a Keith Parkinson painting on the cover of a knight in full armor, minus his helmet, with a spear facing off with a, with a sort of humanoid dragon creature. And I really had no idea what the book was about, but I thought if, if it lives up to that cover, this has to be the greatest book that's ever been written. So I begged my grandfather to buy it, and uh, he did, and that was my intro to modern fantasy. And I was like, wow, this is amazing, this is amazing. But then I, I got to like the last 20, 15 pages, and I was going, wait a minute, how is he going to wrap up the whole story in the next 10, 15 pages? <laughs> and it was only at that point that I discovered it was the middle book of a trilogy, which Whoa. Uh, sent me running to the library. Um, That's so funny. I pulled it up while you were talking, and it truly is an epically beautiful cover. Uh, and it says book two. And I was like, I wonder if he knows that he started with the second one. <laughs> um, in some ways, it worked better starting starting, you know, in the middle of the story. Uh, I had a similar experience watching the reboot of Battlestar Galactica because they did a really weird thing with that show where and I'm I'm forgetting the exact sequence of this. So forgive me. But they had a recap of the previous episode and then they had their title sequence and then, but they also had a little bit at the beginning that was like the new episode, then the recap, and then the title. It's, it was, it's kind of weird. And if you're watching it on DVD, and if you chapter skipped, it would take you all past that and start the episode. So I was watching season one and was thinking that I was just skipping the recap and the title sequence, and I was missing like the first five minutes of every episode. <laughs> and I was watching this with my family, and we were all going, this is a really interesting storytelling technique they're doing. It's so different, and it feels amazing. And then we figured out what was going on, and we went, oh, crap. Um, <laughs> but uh, And then there was one other book that specifically inspired Aragon, which uh, I'm, only, I, I'm bringing it up because... Uh, had a unique experience with it just day before yesterday. Uh, the book was Jeremy Thatcher Dragon Hatcher by Bruce Coville, which is a young adult novel about uh, this boy in the real world who goes to this antique shop and ends up, spoiler alert, uh, buying this stone that actually is a dragon egg and that hatches a dragon that he raises and uh, has adventures with. And that was a huge, I mean, I'm not going to even pretend otherwise. That idea of a boy finding a dragon egg was the direct inspiration for Aragon. I, and I've told Bruce to this, Bruce this, and he's been lovely about it. Um, but the cool thing is my, my wife was actually at the, our local library two days ago and they were giving away some books for free that, you know, people aren't checking out. And my wife saw that actual copy of the book and brought it home. And I, I opened it up and I looked and there's the card at the front where, you know, you can see the checkout history and only a few people have checked it out since the 90s. And I actually saw, the, I can see in there the stamp from the exact day I checked it out and brought it home and Whoa. read back in 1996. Wow. So I'm <laughs> keeping that book. That's going in my library. Wow, what are the odds? That's so wild. Sorry. So like I, an accidental time capsule. Yeah, so, so sorry, I'm long answer to a short question. You have to understand, 
I am used to giving solo presentations and I've done it for 20, almost 25 years now. So if I start like rambling on when you ask a question, it's because you've triggered answer number 37 from the presentation or answer oh, number oh, seven. Oh. That's this is that makes it so much easier for us. We just sit back. Yeah, and you're on the work. horn with two podcasters who talk for a living. We get it. <laughs> yeah, we are definitely. I'm I'm rambly as hell. I have a I have another question here. Let's get to the elephant in the room. Let's give mm. him some love. Give this elephant elephant some love. What can you tell us about Murtag? The fifth installment in the world of Allegasia has already generated so much buzz. It's all I was seeing on Instagram for like an entire day and a half, which is a lot of Instagram uh, for me. Uh, so we, we'd love to hear more about it if you can. Uh, sure. We do know that it's not it's not a spinoff or a retelling. It's a full-length, 700-page novel, direct continuation of the storylines in the Inheritance Cycle. But I want to really kind of like dive into this little thing that you said. And you said this, and it was so cryptic, Christopher. And hmm. it said, this is a promise that more is coming. Uh, ah, you tease. Well, <laughs> b before diving into that, I'll just say that um, the response from fandom and readers in general was uh, exceeded all our hopes, mine and the publishers. I mean, I, it's a big fan base. I know it's a big fan base, but, uh, you know, it's been 12 years since uh, the last big book came out. I had a short story collection, The Fork, the Witch, and the Worm, which came out end of 2018, beginning of 2019. But still, it's it's been a while since a full-size novel. Um. And of course, the story itself in the Inheritance Cycle has been complete, so it's not like it needed uh, a follow-on, although there's certainly threads I left that promised follow-ons. Uh, but yeah, no, the response was incredible. You mentioned Instagram. I mean, on Twitter, I mean, I think I got like a million and a half impressions Oof. within the first chunk of that day <laughs> with announcement. It, yeah. Um, so yes, uh, Murtag is a promise of more to come. One of the reasons it took me so long to write it is because I went and wrote my sci-fi novels. And one of the reasons the first of those took so long to write is because I spent a couple of years world building what I call the fractal verse, which is where all my sci-fi and real world stories will take place. Uh, and now I am in the position where I have my fantasy world and I have my sci-fi slash real world setting. I'm set. I'm good. Um, I mean, there may be some things all right that won't fit into either of those two boxes, but for the most part, I plan on just kind of alternating um, settings from now on. So yeah, there are a lot more stories I want to tell within the world of Aragon. Uh, I have talked for a long time about how there was a fifth full-size novel that I had in mind that I wanted to write. Uh, Murtag is not that novel. Uh, I was I sat down and was starting work on plotting book five. And as I did, I realized there was a lot of groundwork that needed to be put into place for readers to really understand the story of book five. You know, how did we get here? What's going on? There's just, there, there were too many moving pieces. So I, I took a step back and said, you know, how can I address this? And is there a, is there a, is a compelling way to do this? Um, and there was, there was a story in the fork, the witch and the worm. It was the first story, uh, the fork story, which involved the character of Murtag uh, or Murtag, depending how you want to say it. Actually, the I Irish way you say it is the right way. Well, it is a real <laughs> name. I mean, the Irish way of saying it is more like Murtagh. Yeah. But um, Murtag or Murtag, Murtag is probably a little more. Murtag is the flat Americanized vowel. Um, we'll go with Murtag from here on out. But that story dealt with that character and provided a perfect jumping point for this new novel. And um, yeah, it is a it is a direct 
you know, inline sequel to the inheritance cycle with the caveat that the inheritance cycle is finished. That story is complete. You know, I am not trying to resurrect a zombie here. This is a new story in the world, but it draws directly from the inheritance cycle. So I'm curious, uh, and, you know, give whatever information you feel comfortable with here, but mm. uh, when you went to go tackle this fifth uh, installment, I'll call it, is the Murtag story something that you felt needed to be told like as like a simultaneous part of the timeline or had you already had you jumped forward a bit and then thought well no i need to go back and explain some stuff before i'm able to jump forward past where like when murtag is set if yeah it was i was yeah i was jumped i was further down the timeline and i thought i I need to go back so book (laughs) what now i is probably going to be book six um is probably 10 years after the end of inheritance interesting oh maybe more like 16 years. Whoa. So um, that's a decent time jump. But there's other things going on in the world I kind of need to deal with. That makes sense. Wow. It's uh, it's kind of like uh, in uh, Tawny Man when we go, when mm-hmm. Fitz, Fitz is much older, uh, which yeah. is or a big time jump. cooler place. Yeah. Yeah, or even what, you know, the, the five-year jump uh, George R. R. Martin was going to do. Mm-hmm. Um but I'm not doing, you know, that what he's doing is more involved and he was dealing with the exact same characters, which um, I'm, I have a little more freedom than he does. Oh, that's so exciting. It really is. We've heard some from some other authors that we've had on um, that there's this idea and you certainly would qualify for it, that the book grows beyond you, you know, because it's mm. loved and, and it's personalized by so many people. They have a, a strong emotions with the story. What, was your thoughts and like emotional state when you sat down to return to Allegasia? Were you like kind of intimidated? Like, oh boy, I've got a lot. Like, you know, the bar is high, you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, so this year is the 20th anniversary of Random House's edition of Aragon. So I, I had a deadline and a goal that definitely helped push me to finish this book. Uh, so that was motivating. Um, I'd also written a bit about Murtag in the short story collection. So I'd already dipped my toe into his mind a little bit into the character. That was helpful. Even back with Aragon, there were a couple of chapters from Murtag's point of view in the self-published edition that got cut in for the Random House edition. So I wasn't, this wasn't completely from scratch getting back into Murtag, but it was, it still took a lot of work because different character than Aragon his needs as a character were different um and the voice he needed was different also i'm not the same person i was at 15 so um and i and i feel i did feel also that there's an expectation from the fans and you see this with other series but especially with this one perhaps that you know if you were 14 when you read aragon i mean you're gonna be 30 yeah 34 now 35 um the characters have grown up the readers have grown up. I think there's a there's an expectation that the book itself should be a little more sophisticated, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Now, that doesn't mean it's not going to be a rip-roaring adventure. It doesn't mean that I'm throwing in profanity and sex and violence everywhere. I'm not. Um, I just felt like it needed to be more mature. Still enjoyable by a younger reader, but um, a little more sophisticated. Let's put it that way. Um, I noticed that in... Um... Well, and even the the change from Aragon into Eldest, uh, without spoiling much, I mean, I felt like Aragon's temperament um, when it came to another character that he really liked uh, mm. grew up a little bit and, and and saw more 
aspects of what that relationship could be, which I thought was a really great way to tackle that. And it kind of like showcased, no, there's there's movement going on here. There's growth going on here. People yeah. are getting older. And hearing that you're going to continue on with that into, uh, shall we say, middle age, uh, which I don't <laughs> like that term. It's not my term. But I mean, yeah. I'm half. I'm gonna, I'm going to be touring during my 40th birthday for this book. That's awesome. So wow. I mean, that's halfway to 80. I think. I think. I think middle age is definitely the appropriate term here. Whew. Hey, 40 is the new 25. So you're no, in your prime. No, no, it is not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, people. You know, actually, I'm I'm gonna rant for one second here. Go for it. Do it. Yeah, I think I think here. the the attitude that uh especially um in the especially for men sometimes, you know, that you can just mess around in your twenties and don't focus and you still have time in your thirties to build and it's true, you know, it's never too late, but uh, I think that really does a disservice to your own life and your own energies and your own focus, because mm. if you can focus and build and take things seriously, even even from an early age, you get such a leg up and, you know, life is short, even though it is the longest thing we ever do. It is difficult and uh, there are no guarantees of anything. So, um, no, I mean, focus and work hard as soon as you can. Love that. I, I agree with that a lot, actually. I mean, Alexander the Great right, conquered the known universe by the time he was 27. You know, I'm 33. I'm like, man, I'm really falling behind that bar, you know? I mean, all I know is that when I sneeze, my back hurts. So yeah. like, <laughs> that's that's annoying. That didn't used to happen. <laughs> yeah, that's actually why I, I've been really pushing hard with the exercise recently. It's like, yeah. um, you know, it's like I think I'd say about mid, it's like, like 34, 35, you really realize if you don't move, you lose it, whatever it is, yes. flexibility, stamina, strength, whatever. If you don't use it, you lose it. And yeah. Yeah. I used to exercise to try to be hot and now I'm just doing it so that my knees don't hurt. Right. <laughs> so I can breathe when I go upstairs. I can sit crisscross <laughs> applesauce for five minutes without going into crazy pain. There's a great saying from uh, Dick Van Dyke about that. I, I can't remember the whole thing, but he had, he broke out his life with exercise. Was saying similarly, it's like you know, I exercised to look good when I was young, and this, that, at this age, and this, and now I just do it so I stay alive. <laughs> <laughs> That's the goal. So uh, I don't know if you are aware, but Evan and I have been working our way through your um, the Inheritance Cycle series. Just finished the fourth one last night, in fact. And uh, oh, wow. it was so nice to reread it because I read it when they came out when I was 15, 16, you know, way, way back in the day. Yeah. All of the books I read in Barnes and Noble because my parents lived kind of outside of town. So I just would go in there and pull it <laughs> off the shelf and just read it away. <laughs> and um, I'm wondering, as the story progressed, obviously, you grew as a writer. The mm. story grew. It got more complex, both in plot and character development. What was your process of expanding Allegacia like did you have to plot it all out and make an outline or were you just like mm. pony forward into the into the breach my friends I I had a pretty good outline for the entire story of the series uh, and I can prove that but before I started the first book and I can prove that uh, because if you go to Aragon and you go to the scene after uh, Aragon drags his uncle Garrow back to Carvajal, and then Aragon has sort of a feverish night of bad dreams. Uh, the bad dream, or the dream that he has that night, is actually the very last scene of the fourth book. Oh wow! I really? Mean, you, yeah. Uh, you yeah. Go, oh wait. Yeah. Yeah. You can go look that up. Um, <laughs> wow. You now some of the in there. some of the specifics changed. I won't lie. Um, originally, 
Aragon and Arya were going to leave together. Um, so there were a few, you know, there were a few things like that, that, that certainly changed as I gained a greater understanding of the characters and just grew up on my own. But I, I had a very good outline for the series before I started it. And then I outlined each book in pretty substantial detail before starting it. Uh, and that's because I, I cannot plot and write at the same time. I suck at that. Um, I need a good roadmap and then I can concentrate on performing it, AKA writing it as beautifully as possible. Um, but the thing is, as far as like growing Algazia, building the world, a lot of that happened as I was writing. And I found that at least for me, the more I write in a world and the more I write with the char with characters, the more stories suggest themselves, the more world building details suggest themselves. So uh, not to frustrate my readers too much, but they're going to read Murtag and immediately go, okay, but what about this, 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 that we, we need books about all those things. And if I write books about all those things, and I may, they're going to have 10 more questions than and things that they're excited and interested in, because that's just the way the world works. That's the way life works. Uh, you, ne you never reach the end. It's like a Hydra. Every time you answer a question, it brings up yeah. more questions. Which, which I think is exactly what like George R. R. Martin has battled. And he's talked mm. about that, you know, that's the gardener approach to writing where yeah. the gardening approach where, you know, you have so many storylines and characters that are growing and, and each one can foster five more or however many. Well, it's interesting the way that he did it too, because it, it seems like he almost took a back seat and was watching what these characters were going to do next based on the context of what they'd done before. Yeah. And that's a really great way to have this organic story happening. But at the same time, he he doesn't have as much of a hold on it now. Like yeah. he doesn't have it. It also depends on how your brain works because yeah. you need the characters to feel real to you, the author. But you also, at least for me, I'm I'm trying to achieve a certain effect and tell a certain story. But if you can achieve that sense of reality, it almost doesn't matter what the story is sometimes. I mean, that's Stephen King takes that approach also. Uh, and then, of course, a lot of people say, you know, um, his endings tend to be sometimes less strong than the rest of the book. Uh, but that's sometimes a result of that approach. But the upside is uh, his characters are often incredibly vivid and the writing itself is very, you know, gripping and conversational. And um, there's trade-offs for everything. But if you you have to find a way as a writer that lets you feel the reality of the characters in the world, what, however that works for you. You wrote Aragon book one in the Inheritance Cycle as a teenager and have since very much honed your craft. Uh, is there anything about Aragon, that first book that you now that you wish that you could change or any scenes or developments that you would add or subtract to that particular <laughs> book? Absolutely. Um, we've, we didn't mention this, actually, but along with Murtag on November 7th, uh, we are also releasing the 20th anniversary illustrated edition of Aragon, which has over 50 paintings and drawings, full color, full color, full page spreads. It's actually a wider format book. So the, the text is in two columns. Um, mm. It's just an absolutely gorgeous package. Folks can actually look it up online and see some of the art inside it right now. Any done by yourself? I know you're somewhat of an artist. Uh, no, no, not this. Well, actually, no, no. Even the map got redone. So, huh. so, so Murtag has about seven or eight new pieces of art by me, some maps and some other stuff. Um, but the illustrated edition of Aragon is entirely by, done by Siddharth, who's a D and D and magic and fantasy artist. Really, really gorgeous stuff. Um, but my point was, because the text got reformatted, I actually had to look at 
the text of Aragon in a way I haven't in a while. There were even some copy editing questions on it. And as I was going through it, you know, there were a few paragraphs I looked at and said, hey, that's pretty good. That's not too bad. Uh, <laughs> but there was a lot of it I looked at. And I was like, boy, you know, if I were doing this now, I think I could give it a lot more depth. I think I could just bring a lot more to it on a line by line basis, scene by scene basis, probably even add some scenes, more scenes in. Um, but, and, you know, there's part of me that wants to go back and like do a author's preferred edition. I mean, again, Lucas. like <laughs> Steve, Stephen King did that with the Dark Tower series. Mm -hmm. He redid, I think, the first two books, certainly the first book. First book for sure. Um, yeah. But then, you know, that's time and energy that I could spend writing a completely new story. And it's not like Aragon has been unsuccessful. So, you know, cost benefit analysis there. Yeah, and I, I, want, I wonder if that's like a creative black hole to fall into. That's that's kind of my sentiment. And also, there's a good chance I'm going to be reworking all this material anyway mm. uh, for the Disney television show. So since I'm going to be write, a writer on that also. So I, I don't really want to have to do it any more than I have to. <laughs> Chad, I think sense. you were going to ask about that. I but... Well, yeah, I just learned about that because I was just digging into stuff and I saw it come up and I was blown away that it was going to happen can you is there are you at a stage of the creation that you can tell us any sort of teasery or any sort of when we might expect some more information no no we're, we're looking for um uh, a key person in the process and until okay. we have that person we really have nothing to talk about um sure and hollywood is it, it's difficult in hollywood because a lot of people that you might want or who might be interested in the project um, are usually under contract for, you know, other projects that are already going on, or they're under a development deal somewhere else. And uh, it really needs to be the right person who had who's going to help bring this to life. So that's, that's what we're looking for right now. Um, that's who we're looking for right now. Um, and it's, yeah, it's not enough just for someone to be interested in the project, they also have to have, um, I want to say the right taste and flavor to their own work, so that whatever we produce in collaboration is going to be, you know, something that people feel is Aragon and does it justice. Because if we get another, if we get something that is like the, the film, for example, that's it for this, this, this franchise, as far as me, you know, film or television adaptations go. I mean, we're going to have to wait probably 30 or 40 years to see another adaptation if it were to ever get another one. Right. It, yeah. So this really has to go well, or that's it. Yeah, I like the, the movie. <laughs> Evan and I get into I fights did, about this all I, the time. Look, I, I said it on TikTok and everyone jumped down my throat. I was like, I hey, it's like we've got it's like Jeremy Irons is in this movie. Like, I am going to say something very controversial in the Aragon fandom, uh, but I'm the author, so I guess I can say it. The film isn't really that bad of a film. Okay. As a film. It's not a great one, but it's not horrible, horrible. You know, we've all seen horrible, horrible films. It's not that, but no. it's not a great adaptation. Yeah. And that's the problem. And especially, yep. and I think it really suffers in comparison. That's the, you know, you start saying, well, where's this, where's that? And, and it, it doesn't feel like it needs to feel. And that's, that's where it falls down. And, and the crazy thing is they actually had a huge budget, but it was a mess behind the scenes. And so uh, if you were to look at the film and if I were to ask you to guess the budget, you would guess far below what it, what they actually spent on it. Hmm, interesting. Wow. Well, it was definitely in that age where the CGI that was would be required was very expensive, that sort of thing. Um, 
Well, anyway, we're all very excited to see Aragon come to the screen. And I think that it deserves the, at least in my mind, and I know I could probably speak for millions of others, that it deserves the time to take, it deserves to be taken the time to do it right. So I think that that's the right approach. And I think that we're all really stoked that you're super involved with the creation process of it. I'm trying. I'm trying. Now, to take us back to Aragon a little bit, I was just kind of debating with Evan the other day on the podcast as to how one goes about creating a, another language like do you just kind of shoot from the cuff like that sounds elvish skull block or like and how do you know yeah. that you've never used that word before and keep yourself consistent well look i mean i'm not a linguist i was a teenager in montana the internet was barely <laughs> a thing when i was starting um there's two there's a couple answers to this i mean if, if you want to do it properly go become a professor of linguistics just like tolkien and do it right you i'm sure both of you have heard the thing about you know that it's not quite true but that tolkien essentially created middle earth in order to support his languages well the truth the truth behind that is that when you really start thinking about words every word has a history and that history is tied into the history of the world you know of the nations and the peoples uh involved in the creation of that word and in order to really understand that word you have to know that history so that's I mean, that's ultimately what led Tolkien to do what he did. Um, it's an incredibly involved process. Um, an example of this is, oh, I am going to get this entirely wrong, um, but I'm going to, I'm going to, it'll prove my point roughly. Um, there was an admiral in the British Navy who wore a coat uh, made of a certain fabric woolen fabric that was like grog grog I, I can't even remember what the word is but part of it was grog okay and as part of his policy with his sailors is he made sure that the sailors got a daily ration of i believe watered rum and out of because they liked that they started calling it their daily ration of grog old after old grog because if he wore that coat their admiral hmm. and of course what happens if you drink too much of uh that watered rum you get groggy wow whoa okay i really should look up the specifics of this so i can really tell the story properly but you know that's just one word and that and you can do that for basically every word um so to really answer your question, uh, what happened in my case is I needed a word for fire because that's the first magical word that's used in the seri in the books um, outside of the very first chapter, which I didn't have originally. Um, so I needed a word for fire, magical word for fire, and I pulled out a dictionary of word origins, which I'm looking at on my desk right now, and I was flipping through it, and I found um, an old Norse word, brissinger, that... Um, is related there's some mythological meaning there but it can mean fire and i liked it so i used it and then i started using i started researching old norse and used a lot of nordic and germanic words as the roots for my magical language i was a little more consistent and um structured with my approach to my other languages like my dwarvish and some of my other ones uh the thing is is you can create a perfectly consistent well well structured and interesting fantasy language inside of an afternoon if you need to or um a day or two basically you just need to select what consonants you're going to have what vowels create some rules for how they combine and then and, you know create some grammar for your language 
And all of that can be fairly arbitrary if you're not too concerned with authenticity. Uh, and this is without thinking about the history of your world. You're just creating this system. And then you just start creating some words based off the patterns and um, structures that you've already established, the rules. And there you go. You're good to go. And there are lots of websites for creating language, artificial languages. And again, though, if you can go as deep as you want with that and spend years on it if you want um, and get as complicated as you want. But doing it roughly and basically like that, you can knock it off pretty fast. And then you definitely have to create files and keep track of all the words you invent, <laughs> uh, alphabetize them, translate them, keep all your rules written down. Um, that's what I ended up having to do also. That's smart. I'm such a shoot from the hip sort of person that I feel like I would just be like, this word sounds cool. And then two I mean, that later, was basically a world of pain. <laughs> no, no, that's basically how I started. And I didn't really start getting more structured with it until I got into Eldest. Um, I was writing Eldest and Random House was releasing a deluxe slash special edition of Aragon. So one of the ideas we had for it was to include some more language material in the back. So I started codifying some of the rules for the ancient language and writing it down. And as I was going through them, going through that, I realized that I screwed up when Aragon blesses the baby in Aragon in the first book, um, when he blesses the child who becomes Elva. And Aragon didn't mess up the blessing. I messed up the blessing. I used the wrong word. That's a pretty key scene. Too. That's yeah. So yeah, that changes a lot of stuff. Wow. Exactly. So I well, and I had a choice. I could either just fix the word in reprints. I mean, it would have been a simple little fix. But uh, I was, as I said, you know, stories suggest more stories. Ideas yeah. suggest more ideas. So I started asking myself, well, what if he actually did screw up? What would the implications be? And that led oh. to that whole storyline with with Elva. Wow. Uh, Have you ever uh, told that story to anyone before? Or were we the first person people to be privy to that? That's a cool I, Easter egg I, right there. I, I think I've mentioned it before, but, but my point, <laughs> my point I want to be the first, is, Christopher. <laughs> <laughs> like, like you, I started shooting from the hip with a lot of stuff and I have learned through painful experience that it is worth putting the groundwork in beforehand. It's if you think of a book, like a magic trick, you want it to appear effortless to the audience, but to get to that point, you have to be willing to do more practice and 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 more go through more discomfort than any, than, than anyone would think you actually have to. It's like, well, of course he didn't make the ball disappear by that method. No one would be crazy enough to do it that way. And of course, yes, the magician is crazy enough to do it that way. That's kind of what writing's like. Um, and, and the more I do it, the more I really come to appreciate the importance of preparatory work. Uh, speaking of discomfort what was the and and feel free to include some minor spoilers here what was the most difficult or emotionally taxing scene in the inheritance cycle for you to write oh emotionally taxing um like just crying weeping <laughs> into your yeah, keyboard <laughs> uh well i mean Life's so this is on you. this is spoilers for a series that's been finished for 12 years so <laughs> apologies everyone it's on you listener. um in the first book when the character brahm dies that was uh, that was rough to write for me. Um, overall, I'd say the character of Arya was very difficult for me to write um, over the course of the series, just because uh, I am many things, but a hundred-year-old elven princess, I am not. Uh, especially <laughs> had us fooled, Christopher. Especially yeah. as a kid. Um, and then writing the last, the last chapter of the series was um, yeah. incredibly emotional. I, I kind of expected it to be, but it hit me harder than I actually thought it would um, just because it had been such a big part of my life for so long. 
You're saying goodbye to these people. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah, it's hard. I mean, I think I think there are some authors who don't want, actually don't end their series because it's just too painful, and you get so comfortable with the characters in the world. It's like I can just keep writing here forever, and and sometimes they do, and sometimes they produce wonderful books. But I'm I'm a big believer that a good story needs a proper ending. Whether or not you agree with how I ended the story, at least it's got an ending, um, and. That's that's also why I like to sleep in a sea of stars. Is basically a series in a single book. It has an ending. Fractal Noise has an ending. Murtag uh, has an actual ending for the story that's being told in that book, uh, and that's very important to me. Uh, and especially if you look back at a lot of classic sci-fi and fantasy, and some of those books are really short, actually. And you go, why are we needing absolutely giant books these days to tell a story? <laughs> that that someone was able to tell in 200 pages in the past like all the little conan books those things were slivers yeah or wizard of Earthsea, um, a lot yeah, of right, uh, Brad, bradbury stuff you uh you talking about how a author just can't let a character go and immediately popped into my brain which is drist stewart in <laughs> from r.a salvatore i don't know if you've read any of his work which i, I really I love have. but I have. It just goes on. <laughs> hey, you know, as long as it's good, it's good. Right? Yeah, it is good. Um, you've spent a lot of your time lately on. Well, I mean, now we know you're spending your time writing Murtag, but uh, you spent a lot of your time on science fiction yeah. lately uh, with "To Sleep in a Sea of Stars" and the upcoming book uh, "Fractal Noise," which mm. both are in the Fractal verse. Uh, how did you feel about making that switch to a different genre altogether after your success? with high fantasy i mean you could have just kept doing high fantasy. obviously yeah. it worked you know and so now you're moving on to science fiction and uh, you know obviously there is like this kind of argument about whether or not science fiction and fantasy are really all that different or whatever but there i feel like there are some differences like how did you approach that what was that like well i mean i wanted to i wanted to change a pace i wanted to prove i could write something different i wanted to write something more adult uh i grew up reading as much sci-fi as fantasy uh, and i like them for different reasons but i like them both equally um in some ways and I'm, I'm i'm generalizing ridiculously broadly here i know there are many exceptions but in in many ways fantasy is a nostalgic genre it's a backwards looking genre and in many ways science fiction is a forward looking genre um and i really enjoy thinking about the size of the universe and what might be out there and humanity's hopeful future out there and also just the potential possibilities out there. So all of that stuff was fun to write about. Also, after spending, you know, however long it was, over a decade on the inheritance cycle, I really wanted to use my everyday vocabulary. I wanted to be able to use my, you know, English as I speak it instead right. of having yeah. to, you know, uh, write something that's, that's more constrained or different with fantasy. Um, and that, that, was a challenge at first. I actually had to really work at purging a lot of the expressions I used in Inheritance Cycle. Um, I'd say the biggest thing that I ran into as far as differences with sci-fi fantasy is that uh, fantasy, you know, you break the laws of physics and someone asks, how did, you, how did you do that? And you say, a wizard did it. Magic. And in science fiction, you say, well, you reverse the flux capacitor and inverted the tachyon <laughs> beam and da, 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 da. Um, you can do that with magic also, but it's more prevalent in science fiction. Also, if you're, if you're 
trying to be semi-realistic, machines really have hard limitations that you don't have with living creatures. So mm. if you have your characters traveling from point A to point B in a fantasy world and they're on horses and they absolutely have to get there faster, you, you know, there's some wiggle room. You can push the horses faster. Okay, the horse is keeled over. Well, now you're running on foot. You can really push yourself really, really hard because it's the end of the world and you can pull off something extraordinary. With, um, you know, rockets, uh, spaceships, there are very hard limits on what you can do. You know, the frame of the ship is only rated for so much force. You only yeah. have so much propellant um, and you only have so much delta V and that's just what it is. Um, so that that definitely imposed some real storytelling limits on what was possible. But I, I liked that because it ended up suggesting other possibilities. It was like, okay, it's going to take, you know, six weeks to travel from point A to point B. It is what it is. All right, what do I do now? Yeah, it kind of introduces some conflict. Yeah, and you need and you need those sorts of restrictions because otherwise you get situations where okay, FTL is possible. So what's stopping someone from strapping an FTL engine to a, a mile wide asteroid and dropping it right on top of someone's planet? Right. right. Um, if it's traveling faster than light, how do you detect it? How do you stop it? How do you you know all that stuff is fun to think about? Which oh, we were talking about this before our podcast started. Um, where you were talking about. The Expanse, reading The Expanse, yeah. uh, those authors, the authors of The Expanse, and I actually used um, a very similar, the same resource, which is this amazing website called Atomic Rockets, atomicrockets.com. Uh, and Winchell Chung, the guy who runs it, runs it um, created it specifically as a resource for sci-fi authors to create more realistic uh, and interesting science fiction. And it has all the resources you could want on everything from potential engines both you know speculative and realistic uh, energy sources food sources uh weapons how the, all of this might interact um you know he doesn't touch on social stuff that's that's for the authors to deal with but mm -hmm. uh, from a technical standpoint it's it's a fantastic re resource um so for our listeners and for readers that haven't read to, to sleep in a sea of stars um when Fractal Noise comes out, uh, would you encourage people to read To Sleep in a Sea of Stars before they read Fractal Noise, or does it? can they read either one? They can read either one. Fractal Noise okay. is a prequel. It doesn't okay. share any of the same characters, so uh, it, they're really not connected, although they're dealing with some of the same things. And If you have read To Sleep in a Sea of Stars, you will potentially get more out of Fractal Noise, but it is not necessary in the slightest. Um, I actually wrote Fractal Noise first. I wrote it back in 2013, but uh, I wasn't really happy with the first draft, and it was about half the size it is now. Uh, so, I, and and it was a very dark first draft. So I decided that even though I I could revise it and get it to the standard I wanted, that it would not be a good introduction to the Fractal Verse. So I I shelved it, finished to sleep, finished Fork Witch Worm. Um, and then came back and revised Fractal Noise before writing Murtag. And uh, I'm much, much, much happier with where it ended up. Did you have Fractal Noise in mind while you were writing To Sleep in a Sea of Stars? Or was it kind of like this shelved thing that happened to be connected, but you yeah. were really working on To Sleep in a Sea of Stars? I was really just working on To Sleep in a Sea of Stars. I mean, I would think about Fractal Noise every once in a while in the sense that I knew it wasn't successful. And so I was sitting hmm. there. I have a couple of stories like that that... I like the premise, but I'm not quite sure how to make it work as a story. And so I usually, you know, 
whenever I'm daydreaming or in the shower, those are the things I'll be thinking about. It's like, okay, how do I solve this problem? And when I solve it, then I go write it. So with the revision process, I mean, like how much of these connections that you're making where your aha moments where something it does work, even though it was giving you an issue, mm. um, how much of that is sorted out in the outlining process? And then how much of that is sorted out in the revising process? For you uh, it might be different per book obviously yeah but... it, it depends on the book um and and everything's been different since the inheritance cycle you know the inheritance cycle was a classic coming of age story so there were mm. some very uh well-worn age-proven tropes <laughs> that i was able to rely on especially in the first book uh that has served as a safety net for, as a new writer to sort of get my feet under me uh, and that really hasn't been true of, of of these later books, especially Fractal Noise. I'm I'm very I'm actually really curious what readers will think of Fractal Noise because I think it's my uh, most original work. And by the way, shameless plug here. Uh, plug. Uh, Publishers Publishers Weekly actually gave it a starred review last week. Oh, cool. And yeah, they called it they called it sophisticated. So um, oh wow. I, I'm yeah I know bougie. <laughs> I'm happy. <laughs> Um, you made it, Christopher. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but but to answer but to answer your question, uh, with Fractal Noise, a lot of the aha moments happened before I started revisions because I was not willing to start revisions without a good game plan of what to fix. Mm. And then uh, my editor at Tor, Will, uh, really helped me then take that that new version and say, okay, you've put all the pieces in. Let's take it to that next level of of really paying attention to what those changes mean and how they would actually incorporate with the characters. And, and he actually, through his thinking, my editor's thinking, he fixed something that had been bugging me from the very start. I knew something was missing. I didn't know what it was. And he managed to put his finger on it. And I was like, that's it. I'm going to go put it in right now. And then for Mur for Murtag, it was a similar thing um, because I had um, a real deadline on that. I had a good outline. I went and wrote it. And then my editor uh went and looked at it and she said okay you said the book was about one thing it's actually about something else <laughs> and i looked at the book and i went darn it crap you're right um and then that provided the guideline for then the next draft i'm curious um you know to obviously inheritance cycle uh is very popular to sleep in a sea of stars is a is a book talk darling if you didn't know people very much enjoy that book oh and no i, I didn't didn't yeah, know that. I, it's it's got great reviews. Uh, I, I'm curious. You know, you're writing these sequels or prequels or extensions, I should say, of these um, well-regarded works. Does audience perception play any part, like even subconsciously, for you? I mean, are you considering? Oh, like I don't know if I should do this because I did this and I'm doing this just to spite them all. Right? Yeah. No, <laughs> no, never to spite. I love my audience. <laughs> love my readers. Um, yes and no. I mean, I am an inveterate performer in ham and I make my living by writing things that people hopefully want to read. So mm -hmm. uh, I am not, I mean, I am much more in the pulp tradition of writing than I am in, let's say the high literary tradition. So, so I, I, I'm a storyteller. That's, that's how I would define myself. I'm, I have stories that I want to tell that mean a lot to me and hopefully will entertain and hopefully touch people. But 
with that comes the caveat that it has to mean something to me. You know, I have to personally care about it. And the stories that I've written that I have not actually released that have not been successful, which have been some screenplays, some short stories, some other stuff, you have all been where I haven't had a clear idea of what that fundamental story was that I was trying to convey. And actually a great example of this in, in other media would be the new, um, the modern Star Wars trilogy. Yeah. If you if you compare it with the original trilogy, if you ask someone to articulate what is Luke Skywalker's story, hmm. you know it instinctually. You can you can talk about it. It's very clear what type what type of story even is his journey. You can't do that with Ray, um, because it goes all over the place, and that that's that's sort of that exact that's a that's a that's a demonstration of the exact problem i'm talking about so i refuse to even put one word on paper until i can tell someone or have the ability to tell someone what kind of story is this what is it seeking to achieve for the main character you know where do we start and where do we end up um and i know some people start writing books without knowing the ending um and they discovered along the way i i I just can't do that because to me, everything that's happening has to serve where we're going. You know, it's funny. Those, those new star Wars movies, I just rewatched them um, since I'd seen them in theaters uh, mm. for the first time. And uh, it's, it's interesting. I, I feel like it, like it started, it started a certain way. And then I kind of hated the second one, uh, or I guess the eighth, eighth movie. Um, but I really, I kind of ended up liking it the most, like the Ryan Johnson one, mm. more than the J.J. Abrams one, because I felt like it was at least trying to say something. Let's see the you know? problem. The problem with it, sure. and I know, I know why you're saying that, and I, 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 it's like I agree with you in theory, but in practice, <laughs> <Totally>. in practice, <laughs> I think what ends up happening is because it was such a divergence, and the other people in the team, including J.J. Abrams, didn't agree with that divergence. Yeah. What ends up happening with J.J. Abrams' version is that first chunk of that last film, I want to say it was like the first 15 minutes, but I don't know exactly how long it was because it's been a while since I watched the film. It's actually the third, the second film compressed into 15 minutes. It's oh. the second film that J.J. Abrams would have made. Like retconning stuff. Yeah, compressed yeah. into that. And that's, and it's, if you look at the editing, it's edited in a way that no other Star Wars film is edited because every other Star Wars film is edited in a very classic way. I mean, even going to those wipes, you know, the, the, the Buck Rogers yeah. wipes. We right? I immediately wipes. thought of the PowerPoint yeah. wipes. Yeah, they're not yeah. doing smash cuts. They're not doing jumpy stuff. It's, it's um, and actually, well, actually there's, there's, old, there's, there's something else with Rogue One, but that's a different conversation. So, <laughs> um, so the editing is, is too compressed in the beginning of that last film because they're trying to retcon. They're trying to basically outline what the second film would have been uh, otherwise. And, and that just is not a good way to storytell. I think that's a really good observation and, and kind of like really puts a finger on why those movies are just kind of rough. It's just what you said. I mean, it's, it's hard to say like what they're about. You know? yeah. and, and it's hard to say. Why I don't should I even care? I don't know what was going on behind the scenes. You know, it is easy to criticize. It is hard to create, but it really is kind of stunning that with a franchise that big that, you know, you wouldn't have an overall plan that everyone was on board with and, and agreed that, yes, this is going to work before, before you start. I mean, it kind of like digs into my other, uh, that, that, that question that I'd asked before is like how much of the fans, 
you know, it's like I feel like a lot of those movies were such fan service and like trying to stay true to what they thought Star Wars was. And it's like, I feel like they kind of stumbled along the way, not knowing how much of that to include and how much to make a, a movie out of. You know what I mean? I don't know. It's weird. Well, if it were really about fan service, we would have gotten at least one scene with Leia, Han, and Chewie all together again, and Luke. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> But hey, at least we got that awesome milking scene. So that was great. Um, no, <laughs> all right, no so comment. back to you here. <laughs> um, I think you did something really intelligent that I've never seen before that I loved a lot. I don't know if there's going to be a question embedded in this. We're going to we're going to see where it goes. But on your website, um, fractalverse.net, there mm. is a interactive murder mystery. It's a little novella called Unity, mm -hmm. I believe. Is that what it's called? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and. I think the problem, the barrier of entry for a lot of sci-fi novels is like new words, right? It's just people don't, like you mentioned, you know, the tachyon beam, all these things. And it's like, yeah. it can be kind of intimidating for people to get into your world, knowing the effort that it's going to require to even understand, to be ready to understand your story. And by serving that interactive murder mystery, which is just a really cool way of like working my way through a story of, and kind of being a part of the creation process, so to speak, um, you know, there's a links to every word or term that's specific to that world that you can click on and kind of learn about your universe a little bit. So it's very clear yeah. to me that you really fleshed everything out before you started and have, yeah. as a result, you kind of have all these like side rooms of knowledge and info that yeah. you were able to kind of give us in the unity. Tell me about unity. When did that, when did, I know nothing about the creation process. Was that just like a fun idea you had or uh, uh, tell me about it? It's actually something I've had for years of doing like a hyperlinked story since that's how we consume a lot of, you know, text online these days of like, mm. a, you know, like Wikipedia. I actually think that there's, I know other people have done this and done done a lot more with it, but I, I still have an idea in my head of um, doing a really interactive story that way that there could be a lot of fun there. But uh, after I finished to sleep, I wanted to do something more in the fractal verse that wasn't going to take years to do and uh, was going to be additional content for our website. So that's where unity came from. Uh, and in fact, my team and I are working on a print version, which should be coming out fairly soon in the next two months or so, depending on how long it takes to get a couple of legal things like ISBN and stuff like that. Uh, and also, with uh, the release of To Sleep, I commissioned a huge whack load of um, concept art for the Fractalverse. Uh, I worked mm -hmm. with a bunch of top Hollywood concept artists. I mean, these are folks who've worked on Star Wars and Marvel and all sorts of other stuff. Um, and funnily enough, they'd all read Aragon, which was cool. Um, so I commissioned all this stuff from them, and we used that to help really help build out the world and and that's part of why we're doing a print version of unity because I think a lot of people actually haven't been to the website. So just having it up on Amazon is going to allow people to, you know, order this full color art book and see some of this awesome stuff. Yeah. It's beautiful. I mean, just the cover cover of fractal noise is off the charts. I love it so much. It's so good. Well, it's funny. You have to mention that. Uh... <laughs> I didn't want to mention it because I didn't want it to be this whole thing, but if you're comfortable talking about it, then. Well, I mean, I said this on Twitter somewhere. I don't think, uh, I don't think a lot of people noticed, but, um, well, we should provide some context for sure. those listening who perhaps don't know. Uh, it turns out that the cover art for Fractal Noise, uh, is partially AI art. <clears throat> so the way this happened is that, uh, Tor's art department 
presented me with a whole range of cover concepts. And the way they do the way this works at modern publishers is if it's not going to be like a hand painted cover, which often it is, and people shouldn't think that publishers have completely gotten rid of artists because they haven't, you can look at any of Sanderson's covers and lots of fantasy tour commissions a lot of art from a lot of artists. Uh, but especially in science fiction, going with something that looks a little more modern is is usually the way they they like they like to do it. So uh, as with to sleep uh, in a sea of stars, they pull together stock images and their designers manipulate the stop, stock stock images with you know effects and text and you know overlays and silvery foil and you know um, <laughs> silver silver foil and all sorts of stuff to make it look like a cool cover. Um, so they presented me with a whole bunch of options for fractal noise, just like they did for to sleep. And, um, I looked through all of them and they were all pretty cool, but there was one that popped out. And I said, that one, that looks cool. And they said, awesome. And we went around with a couple of versions with that and then came up with what you currently see as the cover of fractal noise. Uh, and it was only once it got released that, um, some very astute people out on the internet said, you know, this kind of looks like the art you'd see on mid journey. And Midjourney is one of the big AI, right, um, right, one of the big AI art programs out there. Now I've played around with Midjourney a little bit, and so at first my reaction was, well, no, this isn't AI. I know this was from the designers at Tor, but then the more I thought about it, I was like, you know, I know why they're saying that. It kind of has that look, um, and and we did quite a bit of the designers at Tor did quite a bit of work on the art itself. It's not the stock image just just bare bones that was originally licensed. So I went back to Tor and they did some looking into it and um, and it did turn out to be um, a piece of AI AI art that formed the basis of the cover. And and you know some people have said well you know using stock images means that an artist is not being paid and that's actually not the case. Um, what happens is someone creates the image. It's an artist, a photographer, whomever and they upload the image to the stock site. And so whenever someone licenses the image, the creator of that image does get paid. Now, of course, in this case, the creator was just someone who typed some words into Midjourney. Um, but if it had been an actual artist, that's how someone would have been paid. Um, unfortunately, by the time all this came out, we were already so late into the production process with Fractal Noise that there really was not time to paint to, to commission our artist to actually hand paint or create a cover which is a long and involved process i mean like, could something have been rushed maybe but i mean we were to the i don't think a lot of people outside the industry realize like how rough production times are right now with the delays and shipping and everything so for example the the illustrated edition of aragon the 20th anniversary which is coming out november 7th is going to the printers beginning of next week. Wow. Because they need that much lead time to actually get it printed and in stores for November. Jeez. Wow. Um, so that was kind of the situation we were in with Fractal Noise. It was it was a no-win situation. Um, but I, I have announced this, I mentioned this on Twitter, and I can say here, Tor is going to be replacing the cover of Fractal Noise on, um, on the paperback edition. So... You know, if that's if that's a stumbling block for someone who wants to buy the book and doesn't want to buy a piece of AI art, you know, the there will be a replacement. So possibly the hardcover is going to be a bit of uh, collector's editions. Now, now personally, 
I do like the art because that's Beautiful. what I picked for the cover out of the options that were presented to me. So I'm not going to lie and say, I hate the art. I don't, I think it makes for a nice cover. Um, but I also, as an artist myself, and as someone who spent a huge amount of money art from art, I really do understand the issues here. And it's, um, it's difficult. Uh, I, I think that AI art is going to become, these, these are just the AI, the AI, program, AI programs are just going to become more, another tool that artists use. But figuring out how that's going to work is something that's still in progress and presents a lot of issues. So I want to hear about your life this last year, because you have been a busy man. You have mm. all these side projects and you have two main projects, Murtag and Fractal Noise. What was it like writing two books at the same time? Was your life absolute chaos? Tell me about it. And a six month old baby in the house. And um, oh, wow. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, two, two kids, actually, but the baby is still not sleeping. Um, oh, boy. Sorry, what was the question? I'm oh too sleep God, deprived. Seriously. Yeah, right. <laughs> Surprised you even were, like got here on time. So. Um, yeah. It's just been work. Um, you know, I had a big chunk of time where I wasn't releasing books and I wasn't able to write the way I wanted to write for various reasons. And uh, that was extraordinarily frustrating, especially since once I finished the Inheritance Cycle, I was feeling like, you know, top of the world. It's like, okay, now I can start getting through all these other stories I want to tell. Mm -hmm. And then uh, things just ground to a halt. So wow. I'm just trying to make up for lost time. You know, I'm not, um, I'm never going to write as fast as Sanderson, but uh, doing my best. And uh, it's just been nose to the grindstone. I mean, so I, in the last five years, I will have released four novels, not counting Unity, and not counting and then and then written a number of scripts uh tele, film and television scripts on top of that for various projects so yeah then it's it's been a, it's been busy so there was a period of time between inheritance and to sleep in a sea of stars what was that process like were you were you just coming at stuff and it just wasn't feeling right it was just a lot of personal things going on and well i was certainly still trying to work yeah. um 2013 is when i wrote fractal noise the first draft and 2013 and a good chunk of 2014 was when I was doing research for building out the fractal verse. And mind you, when I say I was doing research, I mean, that's what I was doing every day. I was yeah. reading, uh, learning. Uh, the big challenge was trying to come up with a faster than light system that didn't mm -hmm. allow for time travel and hadn't been used by some other science fiction franchise. Ooh, and narrow margin. And yeah. didn't, didn't contradict physics as we know it because the fractal verse is set in our future and is supposed to be in the real world. Um, you were it just was hacking at celestial mechanics, my friend. <laughs> yeah, I, and I mean, I never went to college. Uh, I was homeschooled. Um, Same. I have, a, I have a high school degree, but I'm entirely self-taught, and I I really had to really up my um, math and physics skills. Um, I ended up finding a a guy who works on nuclear propulsion with um, with NASA, and he and a couple other guys have come up with uh, I won't call it a theory of everything, but it's sort of heading in that direction. And it allows for faster than light travel. And it's not a theory that anyone else has used. Um, so I had many, many calls with him and he very kindly walked me through all the implications. And he even said, I asked a few questions that got him thinking of some new things. So that was nice. But that formed the basis for my FTL technology and, and all that. Um, so anyway, to answer your larger question, it was a lot of research. It was a lot of writing. And then once I actually started to sleep in a sea of stars, um, I just got off on the wrong foot with it. Uh, I didn't do the preparatory work. This is what we were talking about. 
uh, I didn't do the preparatory work with the story and the characters um, because after writing the inheritance cycle, I won't say I got cocky, but I just sort of had this feeling like, well, I know what I'm doing. I can, I, you know, I'm Best good at this. I'm, <laughs> I'm good at this. I can. Yeah. And no, I can't, I can't wing it. And so I ended up writing this massive book that just didn't work. And I revised it a few times and the revisions didn't work. And the problem is, is, you know, every time you revise a book, that's 250 to 300,000 words long. It just takes a massive amount of time, even if you're just doing small changes. Uh, and then end of 2017, I'd given the latest revisions to my editor and my agent, and they both said, you know, you did really good work here, but it's still not working. So at that point, I'd been working on it full time, 2014, 15, 16, 17. I mean, so that's wow. four years there. Um, and it wasn't working. And it wasn't working. So then my decision was, do I, do I walk away from it? Or do I just really, really step back and try to figure out what I'm doing? And I hate giving up on projects. Maybe it would have been better if I'd written something else. But what I did was I wrote 200 pages of notes by hand inside of a week. And I ripped apart everything in the book, characters, storyline. I mean, I went basically went to first principles and said, this isn't working. What's the problem? Start from scratch. Um, wow. So if you've read To Sleep in a Sea of... And then I got a new plan, told it to my family. They liked it. And I went and wrote the version that we now have. That was 2018. Did 300,000 words in maybe six months, along with doing <laughs> along with doing Fork Witch Worm. So that's the thing is people were seeing nothing. You know, I wasn't publishing anything. And people are saying, are you still writing? And I'm like, I'm writing a lot. You're just not seeing it. <laughs> yeah. um, so if, you've, if any of... If either of you or any of us, any of the listeners have read To Sleep in a Sea of Stars, you'll know the book is divided into sections. Everything after the first, I want to say 50 pages of section two is completely new. Um, there, there was no travel to the different systems after section two in the original version. There were no nightmares. There were no, uh, where was it? No Cordova, no no bug hunt no nidus none of that was in the book no soul there was no trip back to the solar system um but it was a brutal experience it's the worst revision i've ever <laughs> rewriting experience i've ever had the only positive is it taught me a lot of valuable skills and revisions on murtag and fractal noise have been although difficult because it's always difficult um a cakewalk in comparison and i uh have heard very nice things from my editor at Tor and Random House and my agent basically saying um, that I seem to have mastered the process of revision in a way that few have, which is <laughs> always gratifying. Um, speaking of skills, learning things, uh, do you have any advice for aspiring authors? Is there anything with regard to the writing process that uh, you had to learn the hard way, maybe yeah. apart from revisions, <laughs> which we could, which we just covered. But yeah, any advice for mm. uh, aspiring fantasy or sci-fi or any kind of author? I mean, I could talk for an hour on yeah. that, on writing advice. I think a couple of the core things that make a big difference are, don't be afraid to make things difficult for your characters. Every scene, every storyline, you should, always be looking for the reversals you know what is actually going to make things difficult that's actually where a lot of like the pulp writers are useful to look at because they'll always have a twist every chapter it's like and then this happens and then this happens and it always makes things worse for the main character um 
you don't have to go that far, but it's a, it's a useful technique. Um, writing about the things you absolutely truly care about, like the, at the very your 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 deepest obsessions and enthusiasms and concerns, should be the topic of your writing. And fortunately, there are a massive amount of people in the world. So whatever it is you're interested in, I'm sure other there are lots of other people who share those interests. Um, but you need that. Um, depth of meaning in the work to stay enthusiastic about it for the time, the amount of time it's going to take to actually finish a book. And then I would say actually finish your first draft, write your first draft as fast as you can, because you can't fix something that doesn't exist. Hmm. Um, and then this, this, this was the hardest one for me to learn. And I've sort of been talking about it, this whole conversation, which is that just because you write a bad sentence or a bad scene or a bad character or a bad chapter or a bad storyline or even a bad first draft does not necess does not make you a bad author you can look at uh, examples of editing that have been released by really well-respected skilled writers who've been working 30 40 years uh, and you can look at examples of editing on their work and see that they're still ripping apart their sentences and their paragraphs and their chapters. It's a normal part of the process. And if you're a new writer, it's going to be even more a part of the process. Uh, no one expects to sit down at the piano with no experience and play beautifully. It just doesn't happen. So once I wrap my brain around the fact that just because I wrote something that didn't work, doesn't make me a bad writer, as long as I can go fix it. Right. That was a big relief because then it takes the burden off you of trying to be perfect. Uh, and then it's almost like a superpower. You realize that you're immune to failure because, you know, failing is part of the process and means things are happening. Are, are, it, it means that things are happening normally and it's normal to fail and write things that don't work and it's normal to go fix them. And, and, and you need a why you need a reason to write that is enough to overcome the discomfort of writing, whether that's your passion for the story, your need to put food on the table, you know, whatever you, you, you need a why. Uh, and it can be anything as long as it's strong enough. That's why Neil Gaiman, I've watched an interview with Neil Gaiman and they said like, what, what, what drives you? And he's just like, I need to feed my family. I was broke. This is the only thing I felt like I was any good at. So this is what, and I don't like waking up early. So yep. yeah, <laughs> I, I, I uh, definitely can relate to that. All right. Well, as we begin to kind of draw to a conclusion here, um, we are in a really cool phase of fantasy literature that's it's fresh and new ideas are being introduced in ways that i just feel like haven't been at any time before and i want to pick your brain what would you personally like to see more of in the fantasy genre like what's not what what doesn't exist enough uh books by christopher paulini <laughs> <laughs> I, I i say that not because i want to read my own books but because i was too many stories I want to tell and not enough time. And I'd love a magic wand I could wave that would let me get those out faster. Um, boy, I don't know. That's a, that's a tough one. Cause sometimes a lot of times you don't know what you want until someone creates it something new and yeah. you get to see it. Um, I have a contradictory answer. Let's On one it. hand, I like, I'd love to see more stories that are just straight up fun. Uh, especially after yeah, a long a day of tough news and, this, that, and other. It's nice to sit down to something that is escapism in the best sense. Doesn't mean that he can't deal with, you know, deep topics and all of that, but something that's ultimately positive and, and uh, encouraging and, you know, the hero wins in the end. 
I do like those types of stories. Uh, the other part of my answer, and this is the contradictory bit, is I found that after I got out of adolescence, I was less interested in reading a lot of fantasy because so much of fantasy is is geared around the coming of age story, the adolescence story. And if you're no longer in that stage of life, it can still be a lot of fun to read about that as evidenced by lots of adults who read my books or Harry Potter, what have you. Uh, and in a sense, it's, you know, it's a, an experience we all have shared or will share or are sharing. You know, it's one of the few universal things for humans. Whereas once you're in adulthood, we all go and do different things and have very different lives. Um, but I guess that's the thing is once you're into adulthood, there are fewer stories in fantasy that kind of deal with adulthood and what's it like, um, you know? Where's where's the story about the the mother or the father who has kids? Yeah. In an epic fantasy story. There are some. Um and of course, you know, I'll, I know I've mentioned Sanderson a few times. He has lots of characters who are, you know, adults and have families and all of that. But um I don't know, it just feels like there should be more types of story that deal with the different phases of life. Yeah, that's one of the things I really liked. I don't know if you've read this trilogy, but uh, the Broken Earth trilogy by NK Jemison um is it's a mom you know and it's yeah. it's so nice and i i was i thought that a little while ago actually when i was reading that it's uh, it'd be cool to see more kind of like there and back again type go get the MacGuffin, whatever story but with like a, a like a parent with a kid in tow you know mm. i think that's why the new god of war remake from 2018 was so yes. massively popular is because this is a story about a parent you know, mm -hmm. we haven't seen that very often or, you know, it's usually about a kid uh, turning into a parent, you or know, something. and it's interesting because we see a lot of stories, a lot of movies about the dangerous lone wolf character sort of mm -hmm. thing. Um, and then, of course, every once in a while you get something like Taken, right, as an example, yeah. the father who, or the mother who has to do something. But especially after being a parent myself, boy, I'll tell you, um, I think a lot of those stories are written by people perhaps without children because... Once you have children and once you know, really know what that's like, a parent is the last person I would ever mess with. <laughs> yeah. Cause, cause the thing is other people might hesitate. They might have doubts. They might, have, you know, someone's child is threatened. You are getting put down. There is no hesitation <laughs> on the part of the parent. You know, they are going to take you out, whatever that takes to protect their child. It's just he says um, this with a sword over his uh, left yeah, shoulder. Seriously, this is <laughs> yeah. a giant red sword. And I'm ready to do him. it right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's a. I love that answer. Yeah, that's I mean, a I, really I, good I, answer. Yeah, the, the most dangerous people are a perhaps people who are violent for whatever reason, perhaps. For, for, you know, for whatever reason, but the most dangerous people in some ways are actually going to be the kindest and most protective people. And that's an interesting storyline to, to, to mine. I mean, what is the first, the quote of your book is, tis a fearful thing to love what death can touch, right? Well, there Ooh. you go. That's fractal noise. That's right. Right there. I did man. not I love it. I did not write that. That's a quote from uh, a funeral poem. Oh, I okay. noticed in, in uh, the inheritance cycle, one of the big one of the big things that I took out of it at least was, um, you know, like at what point are people with good intentions doing harm, you know, yeah. com in comparison to the people that they think have bad intentions doing an equal amount of harm. Yeah. Like that's a huge part of that series. It tackles, and I thought it tackled it really well. Um, 
and I think that you know you can kind of tie that to what what you would like to see even more of in fantasy as well. It's just like yeah, and it's parents. it's not it's not black and white either. Right. I mean, yeah. Uh, you know, for the point of view of a poor footman on the opposing side facing off with Aragon or some of the other characters, it'd be like facing a demigod. I mean, it's it'd be absolutely terrifying. Right. Um. I don't know if you remember the old martial. I say old, but it's not that old. Uh, the, the martial arts film Hero. Yeah, any, that's a really yeah. good movie. <laughs> it's a really good film. I, I actually saw the they they slightly edited it for the U.S. market. I actually saw the original Chinese cut, hmm. uh, which is slightly different. But I remember in the film, there's a scene where um, there's a Jet Li, the main character, uh, storms a castle, fights his way into the castle, and he's just you know, cutting down soldier after soldier. And of course, you know, no ordinary man can stand against him. And I was thinking, you know, those guys, that was just an ordinary day at work for mm-hmm. them. And uh, here they are right. being cannon fodder. And uh, that's, <laughs> thoughts like that are also part of why a big part of the inheritance cycle was thinking about the, you know, the problems with magicians. You know, what do you do when some people actually do have abilities that are beyond what the normal human can do, you know, how do you constrain that? How do you deal with that? It's a, it's a major, major problem. Well, not to mention your main antagonist, Gabatorix, is very aware of that issue. And him being aware of it, it seems almost like a good intention because of the context around yeah. that system. It's so right. complicated. Well, I mean, it, <laughs> it actually goes to one of my pet peeves. And I know why writers do this. I totally understand it. But I hate when... There's a story that has something unusual happen, and it never really deals with the questions about that unusual thing. Um, like, for example, there's, a, I forget the name of the film, but there's a film with Ava Gardner, old film from the 50s or 60s, where maybe it was the title of a mannequin. I can't remember. Um, but she's like the daughter of Zeus or something. And mm-hmm. like the mannequin turns into her, and she's with this guy in, in the modern day and all of that. And it's like, okay, it's a perfectly charming film. Uh, the actors are great, but my brain immediately is going, why is not the main character immediately saying, excuse me, you're saying the Greek gods are real? And what if he's a Christian and has a different point of view or he's, you know, a different religion entirely? I mean, it raises so many bigger questions. It's like, okay, yes, yes, you're beautiful and all and you want to spend time with, fine, fine, fine. But Zeus is real? Can we talk about this? <laughs> not addressed. Um, yeah. Like Harry I hate Potter, when, he's like, I hate when stuff... Christians? Yeah, I hate when stuff like that gets ignored. Yeah, it's 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 funny though when you're you know when you're creating uh, out of basically nothing almost it seems or it feels like uh, it's almost like you can never quite cover everything. You can never quite no. cover every question. There will always be stones left unturned. Uh, but I think you did a phenomenal job with uh, inheritance at uh, overturning those stones when you could. Uh, everybody that's listening right now, make sure to go get Fractal Noise when it comes out on May sixteenth. Yeah. Uh, or you, read. or you can pre-order it. Pre-order, pre-order it now. It. That's even better. Pre-order it right now. Uh, go read to sleep in a sea of stars. Look out for Murtag, 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 <laughs> uh, on November seventh, which uh, it, to the delight of millions of people on the internet is coming out this year. A nice surprise for all of us. Where do you want people to go to find you online, uh, Mr. Paolini? Uh, my main website is paolini.net. Uh, if you're looking for the sci-fi side of things, it's fractalverse.net. And of course, I'm 
highly active on Twitter and Instagram, and I even have a TikTok these days. So mm -hmm. uh, you can just look at my name up on my name on any of those sites. And we'll be sure to link all of that stuff in the description on this episode. Everybody, thank you so much for listening to our wonderful conversation with Christopher Paolini. Christopher, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on Book Reviews Kill today. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks, thanks for having me. Everybody, hope you have an awesome rest of your day. And of course, happy reading. Bye, everybody.